notes. You may have refused them at the door, I appreciate that, but if it, assuming you wanted them, have it, has it, everybody got one that needs? No, Janet down the front here, Joe down here, so do with some, some notes, thank you. Would you like to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11? Your Bible should fall open at this point. (laughs) Good. Please don't feel obliged to read them during the time they're there if you want them. I will be referring to a chart that's on there a bit later, but uh, otherwise just take it as you wish this morning. Uh, If you're a regular here, um, you'll know that uh, we've spent quite a long time going through Hebrews chapter 11. Had a number of different preachers bringing out features uh, from this chapter. And we've done it under the heading of Real Faith. And we've looked at various characters, people with very different circumstances who exercised faith in God and they were commended for it. God recognised their faith. And if I was trying to think, how would we kind of sum up the whole of this really just in a phrase? And I think it's about faith that enables us to, to persevere in following Jesus no matter what the circumstances. That's the message I think comes across. All these people were different. Their circumstances were different. And our circumstances are different. Um, If we just to take the people in this room, we have different circumstances, but I believe the answer is the same. And we look around the world and Christians have all sorts of different circumstances, some of them quite dire. But I believe the message um, is just the same. So we're going to kind of summarise it all a bit this morning, try and wrap it up and leave us with something to go away with. And um, we kind of finished our worship with saying it's all about Jesus. And I hope that's the the message you'll get time I've finished. Actually, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word in its entirety is given to us for our instruction, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's all there for us. And uh, Father, I pray that, uh, again, as we look at it this morning, that you will touch our hearts, that you'll um, challenge us, Lord, where necessary, uh, affirm your grace towards us where necessary. Whatever we need, Lord, we know we can get it from you, uh, through your word, through all sorts of other ways as well. But we ask you, Lord, speak to us again, we pray, through this living word, uh, that we have, that is so precious to us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to recap, and you've heard us say this before, but this was written to Jews, and that's why it's called to the Hebrews. It's another name for the Jewish people who had become Christians, who were now um, being persecuted, principally by fellow Jews. We know Christians were persecuted by Gentiles too in the the early centuries um, by the Romans and others. But I think the writer is, is talking to Jews who have been persecuted by Jews. They've become Christians and now they're under great pressure. To be a Christian when you were a Jew in these circumstances um, brought quite a lot of disgrace to you. You were, you were put to one side. 
Um, and um, so you had to suffer disgrace. And there was quite a lot of pressure to go back, to go back to, to Judaism. That would have been the easiest thing to do. Let's get the pressure off. Let's go back to where we were. And then with these people, we offer our backs and so on. And um, the writer is trying to encourage them not to do that, but to go on. Keep pressing on um, because it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And um, what he does, he gives a, a little example, which I think is a means of encouragement. If you look back at chapter 10 and verse 32, I think he's trying to encourage them here. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light. In other words, have, have you received the knowledge of Jesus and his salvation and embraced it. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had, a better, and lasting, had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. So what's the writer doing? They're, in, they're struggling now, but he goes back into their history to find times when they did persevere, when God helped them, when God gave them grace to press on and to do the kind of things that God wanted. And I think there's a lesson for us here. Um, often we come a, a, across other Christians who are struggling in some way. They're suffering, they're struggling, and we don't know quite what to say to them. And if it's possible, a good thing to do is to look back in their lives and say, hey, John, hey, Fred, whoever it is, I, I just remember two years ago, you were really going through a difficult time, but God helped you, didn't he? God gave you grace at that time, and you came through it, even though it was bad. And that same grace is available to you today. So we can use these times, look into people's lives and see how God has worked. Because when it's happening to you, when you're down or whatever it is, you kind of forget all those things. You're so immersed in the problems that you have at the time and that you forget that. But we need to remind you, be reminded that God has been faithful in the past and will be faithful in the future. So that's very important. So I think the writer's saying here a bit of a well done. Um, if we take the letter as a whole, I think it's a bit of a microcosm in some ways of the whole of Scripture because it's about God's progressive revelation of himself and his purposes culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. You can describe the Bible in all sorts of ways, and I guess people might say, well, it's a book of stories, it's a book of rules and regulations, it's this, that and the other. But principally, it's the way God is revealing himself to mankind. He does it through narrative, through all sorts of different things. But God is revealing himself to people through his word. And it's a progressive revelation, a progressive understanding. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, this is what, what the writer says. Hebrews 1 verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So it's saying, yes, God has spoken in the past, but principally and primarily is spoken through his son. And he gives us a little idea of the majesty and wonder of who Jesus is. And right through this book, this letter, Jesus is shown to be superior to angels, to prophets, to Moses. I mean, that was a biggie, because Moses was a huge hero uh, for the Jews. He'd give, he was the one who administered the law um, from God, and he was a great hero. And also for the priesthood, and particularly the high priest. And the new covenant which Jesus introduced, which Jesus inaugurated, is superior to the old one. Um, we've got Old and New Testaments in our Bible. You could say we've got Old and New Covenants in our Bible. That's what it really means. And um, what uh, the writer says is the Old Covenant is described as a shadow of the good things that are coming in Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. It was part of God's proper re- revelation to mankind. But it was a shadow of the good things that were coming in Jesus. Jesus is the substance and this is the shadow. And uh, everything about Jesus is better. It's better, including the promises. Let's um, just read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, and you'll see what the writer's trying to say. It's not saying that the old is of no use. It, It had its purpose, but it's now being superseded. But the ministry Jesus has received, because he's talking about the high priest here, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said... The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and ageing will soon disappear. So the superiority of the old covenant and um, also the superiority of the one who administered it, which is Jesus. He is superior to all with superior promises. Okay, let's um, kind of focus a bit more now on chapter 11, which um, opens with the famous verse, doesn't it? Faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And we know the ancients are the heroes of faith, as they're often called, from the Old Testament, that the writer is going to use to illustrate what you can do with real faith, what happens with real faith. And um, so we have um, examples from Jewish history of people who were weak and vulnerable, um, like us, who nevertheless trusted God and fulfilled his purposes. If you remember Derek's message a few weeks ago, uh, when he was talking about Samson, he said, Samson messed up big time, didn't he? (laughs) He really did. But God can use people who mess up. God uses weak people. But if people can put their faith in him, then he can use them. There was... Julian had a question for us a couple of weeks ago and uh, it was this, something like this. Anyway, having studied these heroes of faith for over a number of weeks, what difference has it made to our lives? Me included, our heads went down. You know, um, hope he's not looking at me. Um, (laughs) Because I bet most of us were thinking, hmm, not really sure what difference it's made. I think one of the things about the scriptures is that sometimes things will have a sudden impact on us. Other times it's a bit like drip feeding. That's why it's important to read the Bible regularly over a long period of time. And you're looking back, you begin to see your life fashioned by the word of God, applied by the Holy Spirit. And so it's not surprising that not many people would have put their feet off, put their hands and say, yes, I know what's changed and so on. But we have some help because the writer indicates the effect it should have on us by starting chapter 12 with, therefore. Right? He's, he's given you this catalogue uh, of people and described their faith and how God commended them. And he now says, therefore, which is applying to them. But we'll see that later. Okay. So um, <clears throat> we're going to look at, particularly, look at um, some verses from verse 32 of chapter 11. And this is a strange passage because it has a very stark change in the middle of it. The whole tenor of what is being said changes and we'll deal with it um, in two sections. So verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. We've heard about those in recent weeks, haven't we? Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Fantastic. It's, it's like a big epic film, isn't it, eh? You know, Star Wars or whatever else. It's all go, 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 isn't it, really? We're, 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 we're conquering. We're getting through. Okay. And um, that's great. And one might, if you just stop there, think, well, if we become Christians, we're successful in everything. God helps us and we win and we don't suffer even people who die get raised to life, so we don't have to worry about that. We don't, we're not troubled by anything like that. And these 
these verses might suggest that. If we, we looked at these in isolation, become a Christian and you will be successful in everything that you do because God won't let you suffer and he'll help you. Um, I put in brackets there that all these victories were achieved with weaker forces than their enemies demonstrates that faith is a mighty weapon. And what I'm going to say after this, I don't want to detract from that. It is, and God uses it, and we have evidence of it. We have record of it there. But I've just added to that. However, there is no place for a prosperity gospel. And this is a slight diversion, but I think it's important at at this point to say something about it. That may mean nothing to you whatsoever, all right? So that's fine if you're not troubled by it. But... Um, The prosperity gospel, sometimes referred to as the health and wealth gospel, is believed by many, many Christians, um, perhaps particularly in America. I think that's where it started. Some very good things started in America. Um, This may be not so one of the good things that started, not so good things, but primarily in America, which in its extreme says, we are children of God and God will bless us and we will have the best things in this life, whether it's clothes, whether it's fashions, whether it's uh, uh, cars, whether it's money. We are children of God and the kingdom of God has come and therefore we must enjoy the full fruits of the kingdom of God. And faith is the key. If you, if you faith, if you speak it out in faith, it will happen and, uh, and you will enjoy the blessings of God. And so people who... Um, accumulated wealth, who did well in their business, it will be seen as being the blessing of God on their lives. Now that's the extreme. I've just quoted the extreme. Okay? But there are people who operate like that. Now one enormous tragedy of this, apart from, I think, it being another gospel, um, the, the enormous tragedy of this is that evangelists from, say, America or other wealthy countries get in their jets and they go to Africa And uh, they gather hundreds of thousands of very, very poor people. And they they preach the gospel, but it's a gospel that says, come to Jesus and you'll be rich. Come to Jesus and you'll have all that this world can offer. I say that is the extreme. But I have to say that it is another gospel. It's not the gospel that Jesus preached nor nor the apostles taught. Now, it's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to want to see God healing people and so on. That happens. But it's not the attitude that we should face our Christian life with. If you think about what Jesus said, for those who wanted to follow him, he said, anyone who comes after me, he needs to deny himself to take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if you're going to follow me, be prepared to suffer. Uh, Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to, to go without the things that most people crave in this world. Be prepared to go without them. And so, uh, this is the kind of thing that people were were preaching. And I think this particular passage that we have here um, highlights the fact that um, the prosperity gospel has no place even in this particular chapter. So, let's read on. Let's read on. I'll read the, that verse 35 again. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. 
so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in, the cave, and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So what a striking contrast between that and the, and the first section. And this is consistent with what Jesus promised his disciples. I don't know whether any of you collect promises from the Bible and maybe put them on your fridge or whatever else. Is this one on your fridge? Remember what I told you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here's another one. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay, it's a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So, from this passage, um, we can conclude that it takes faith to conquer and it takes faith to suffer and maybe die for being a Christian. And we can see that contrast today. If we, we look at Christians today... There will be those, perhaps a, a pastor of a small church gets together with his congregation and they seek God and they fast and they pray and they have faith that the church is going to grow and within 10 years there's 5,000 people in their church and they've got a mega building that costs a huge amount of money and they've got all the modern technology and they're preaching the gospel that way. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But also we know that there are people, Christians today, languishing in prison. There are those who have lost their property, they've lost their family, right? they may lose their lives, and it's the same faith that motivates them. So we need to have that balance. And the fact of the matter is that although the kingdom of God has come, it's only come in part. And the full promises of the kingdom will only be ours that day when Jesus comes again and we you know, spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when there will be no pain, no sickness, no needs, no death even, and that we will be with God forever. Those promises will be fully fulfilled. And to some extent, that's what the writer was trying to point these people to, that these, some of these promises are still to be gained in the future and you will receive the blessings of them. So we are encouraged to have an eternal perspective because one day all of these things will be ours. The meek will inherit the earth, the whole earth. You know, we will have all these blessings and they will be ours, but we can't uh, guarantee to have them now. They're not our right now. Um, living necessarily in peace and comfort uh, and in wealth is not our right now. Even to say living in health is not our right now. It will be one day. Let me just uh, read there what's on your sheet from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul speaking, who, as we know, suffered a great deal. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Anybody looked in the mirror lately and <laughs> believed that? We're wasting away? Uh, okay, good. 
Right? We understand that, don't we? But inwardly, we're being renewed. There is the deposit of the Holy Spirit, which is guaranteeing our redemption within us, and our spirits have been enlivened by God, and they can be renewed, because that is what we will take into eternity. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What's he referring to is light and momentary troubles. He's talking about beatings, lashing, stoning, imprisonment, left for dead, just light and momentary troubles. But they are compared with what God has prepared for those who love him. So he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, so that what is, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It is temporary. However much we love this life, and however much we look after ourselves, and how much we, fun we want to have in this life, we do know that it's temporary. And um, so we need to have a perspective on eternity. But I think this is hard. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. How do we do that? How do we fix our eyes on what is unseen? Pretty difficult, isn't it? Because actually we don't know too much about what happens when we die, do we? And that's what I'm speaking on next week, incidentally. What happens when we die? That was a question one of you put on one of those little cards. And it's down to me to answer that question. So, yeah, you, But in actual fact, we're not told an awful lot about it. So how can we... How can we fix our eyes? How can we, how can we fix our eyes? I'll, I shall fill up the time, don't worry. That's okay. <laughs> Just a few jokes and whatever. No, no. Um, how, how do, what can we do? Well, I hope by the end of today you'll know what to do. And another passage from the earlier letter uh, to the Corinthians. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, if we're saying, I've become a Christian because now I've got a better job or I've got this, which is fine, God helps us with all these things, or life is now far more fulfilling now. But if that's all there is, then we're to be pitied because some people in becoming Christians find that the things of the world are taken away from them. The things that they would love to have are removed from them. In fact, so that they, they lose a lot of what we might consider the benefits in this life. So if they've done that for nothing, if there's nothing beyond the death, then they are to be pitied. But there is. There is glory beyond death. And so this is the question or the point that he's making. Here's one of my favourite quotes. I'm sure many of you will know it from Jim Elliot, um, who was a missionary to the Alka Indians in Ecuador in the 50s. Um, there were five of them, American missionaries, who went by, dropped in by plane uh, into um, jungle areas in Ecuador and they were martyred by the Alka Indians because the Alka Indians were, were afraid of what these guys were there for. Later, uh, they were converted. They became Christians and um, missionaries themselves. But this is what Jim says. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this is kind of the message that we're saying here, is that we can't keep this life, we can't keep the things of this life. 
And we've got to sometimes be prepared to give them up, to, to gain something that will last for eternity. I think this is an absolutely brilliant quotation. They like to turn over. I just want to take a minute or two to look at verses 39 and 40. Kind of a strange thing. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Well, actually, it says some of them did gain what was promised. So what's, what, what, what's going on here? And then it said God had planned something better for us. And that's why I've headed it, something better for us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. So they received the outcome of some of the promises that were made to them. But the big promise, which was the promise of the coming Messiah and the kingdom to come, they did not receive, they did not see the outcome of that. They, they looked at it, they welcomed it from afar. That's what the, the writer says. They were looking forward to it. And um, so some of them received the outcome of promises. They received what was promised. Others didn't, but it's suggesting they were all looking beyond that, looking beyond that to, to God's great promise. They did not receive the revelation of the Son of God as we have. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, as it says. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They never did. They never had that privilege. But God accepted them for their faith and included them in Christ's work of salvation. God accepted their response to the light that they had. You see, even Abraham, who had, didn't even have the law, um, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God is the just judge. God knows people's hearts. And there are those Old Testament saints uh, who will be saved in the same way that we are, even though they knew nothing about Jesus at that time, because God acknowledged their faith and justified them. That they were commended for their faith. We put our trust in Jesus and we are commended for our faith. We're justified by faith. And if you thought about it, but we trust Jesus who died 2,000 years ago. Right? Not in our day. Jesus wasn't dying for us now. But we accept the fact that Jesus died for us. He died for me. He died for my sins. And in the same way, Jesus died for the sins of those who lived 1,000 years before him, who put their trust in God, who God commended. And God ratified, if you like, their faith through the death of Jesus. They needed Jesus to forgive their sins or to die for their sins just as much as us. And so the before and the after meet together at the cross and the outcome of that is the communion of saints made perfect in Christ. So that's what he's saying is they were looking forward to our day. They needed our day to be made perfect and our day includes Jesus and the, the, the wonderful sacrifice for our sins. Let's get on to verse uh, chapter 12 and this is where we kind of draw to a conclusion. We come back to the therefore. Right, we've looked at these people, their faith, their courage, what, how God used them. What, what should it do for us? Well, we have now the therefore. Here is how we should respond to our study of these Old Testament heroes of faith. comes back to Julian's question. What's it going to do for us? Okay. So, 
we get at the beginning of this chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, some people have liked to describe this as a, a, a sports stadium, an arena, where we're running the race, that, and there are athletic references here. And um, all these people are like in the stands and they're cheering us on. That's a nice picture, but that's not what's happening here. Okay? They're not witnesses of us, they're witnesses to us. Their life is a witness to us. They're not, they can't communicate with us. The Bible makes it quite clear that there's no contact between the living and the dead. Otherwise we get into spiritism and all sorts of things. There is no contact. So they are witnesses of what you can do with your life when you put your faith in God, when you trust God. And they're an example to us. Another, another word might be example. So they're not cheering us on, but they're an example uh, of, the, of people who persevered by faith with far less understanding than us. God commended them when they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the wonder of what a difference it makes in your life to know Jesus as your saviour. And yet they persevered. They believed God's, God's promises, the promise of a coming Messiah, and they trusted him, uh, and they persevered. And um, as we read on, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Very important phrase there, the race marked out for us. We all have a different race. There are some similarities about it, our life and what we have to face will be vastly different from other people. Either in this country or abroad. We, we know we can study the lives of Christians in other countries, uh, very poor countries, and we say their life is so different from mine. And we can look at people uh, in our own environment and say, I'd be a better Christian if I was like them, if I had their circumstances. If I wasn't troubled with this or troubled with that, I'd be a much better Christian. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what kind of life we have, the secret of success is the same here. It's always the same. And the same is, get rid of unnecessary hindrances, deal with your sin and keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the issue, no matter what circumstances we find. We can't use our circumstances... Uh, to make excuses for ourselves. Because the the writer has covered all sorts of circumstances and now he's saying the secret, here's the secret, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. So it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I haven't got time to go through lots of examples, but hindrances are things that aren't necessarily wrong They're not wrong in themselves, but which fill our lives and make following Jesus more difficult. We're particularly prone in this country because there's so much to do. We can fill our lives with so many things, can't we? And uh, some of those things cause us to make our faith and our following Jesus a bit of a sideline. Yes, I do all this. Yes, and I'm a Christian, and I sometimes go to church, and I sometimes read the Bible, or whatever. Um, this is um, a, a kind of a sporting uh, scenario, isn't it, here? And it does remind me that, particularly today, athletes don't allow anything to hinder their progress. So 
you know, clothing is designed not to get caught and not to provide wind resistance. Um, I, I'm told that cyclists shave their legs. Okay? Not, not so that the little silk scarf doesn't stick as you drop it. Okay? It's nothing to do with that. It's, <laughs> it's to get rid of any wind resistance because they're looking at fractions of a second you know, to, to, to make sure nothing hinders. You'll notice that many athletes wear lycra now, okay? And because it's close to the body, it doesn't, doesn't get caught in anything. Now, I'm a bit of a cyclist, and... <laughs> and I just said to Joe, I just said, I'm just wondering whether I should get a pair of lycra shorts. That was not a good thing to say. I had no confidence from my wife that that would be a good thing to do. Do you know, I don't know whether they're actually accepted now, but there are swimsuits that are designed not just to fit closely, but to shape your body so that um, you you travel through the water more. So these people are concerned not to let anything hinder their progress. And I think it's a word for us. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Forget about the lycra now. Come on. Or what I might look like in lycra. Okay? Forget that. Forget that. Right. To Timothy. Two. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. We understand that. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. According to the rules. So that's hindrances. Sin, disobedience, really. I think we have to say disobedience to God's law, what God's written. But even hindrances can become sin if God makes it clear to us that there's something that we're involved in that could be legitimate and yet it's not part of his plan for us. And he's made it very clear to us. If we go ahead of doing that, that's sin because we've disobeyed. We've disobeyed the witness of the Spirit in our lives. So it's important. And we know that Jesus was very radical about it. He said, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. In other words, if you're looking at things and you can't resist looking at things, you shouldn't pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. So he was saying, be very radical about it. And I guess that we need to be the same because sin causes us to stumble in our life. So it's deal with the hindrances, deal with the sin, and of course, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, the Old Testament heroes are a good example. Can't get away from that. He's got taken a lot of time to tell us that these people are a good example. But they cannot help us. Right? They're an example, but they can't help us. If the, if the arena scenario was true, or perhaps the Wimbledon scenario was true, that we're, we're tennis players and, and all these people are like in the stands, then... We know that Andy Murray gets a lot from the crowd, right? They really help him uh, to play. But that's not true for us. Jesus is our example and he is 
our help. So we're told, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Perfecter is the finisher. Jesus, what Jesus starts in us, he will finish in us. Incidentally, my computer didn't like the word perfecter, but there it's in the, the NIV, so we'll keep it. But just to get a clue that it is God who will keep us to the end by his grace. Jude writes this, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. So these people can be good examples but they can't help us. But Jesus is not only a good example, and he is a good example, but he can help us. So looking to the unseen, as I mentioned earlier when quoting from 2 Corinthians 4, may seem difficult, but we can look at Jesus. We are told a great deal about Jesus, and it's all about him, as we've uh, mentioned in our worship. The future is all about Jesus. Eternity is all about him. And the more we see of him, the more we learn of him, the more confident we will have to set our, our sights on, on what is unseen than what is seen. I'd just like to read to you from the introduction of one of my favourite books. I'll read it over and over. The Glory of Christ by Peter Lewis. It gets a little bit theological in places, but in his introduction, he talks about a holiday in Wales, little tiny church, and... Um, they stopped speaking Welsh and spoke English for, the, for, their, for their benefit. And this is the preacher t- speaking. He says, When I was a boy, about 12, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of gaining a cap in rugby for playing for his count- country and who played cricket to county standard. I so admired this man that I papered the walls of my bedroom with press cuttings and photographs of him and loved to talk and hear about his exploits in the field. He was my great hero. Then, when I was in my 14th year, I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a keen angler, and I used to go fishing with him. On these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint and got to know the man, not merely the image. At this point, the preacher paused, looked closely at his congregation, shook his head slowly from side to side with an air of considerable authority, said in emphatic tones, and the nearer I got, the smaller he became. In a few brief brief sentences, he sketched the young boy's disillusionment as he discovered the true character of the man whose public image had so captivated him. No doubt everyone in the congregation that morning recognised the experience and sympathised with the preacher. But attentive as we were now, uh, sorry, but attentive as we now were, we were hardly prepared for what followed. Suddenly, in a rising voice with his arms outstretched, voice breaking with emotion, he cried out. But God eventually led that downcast schoolboy to a new hero. And I have walked with my Jesus for 35 years now, and in that time I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I've got to know him better, and the nearer I get to him, the bigger he becomes. I like that quote. Excellent. 
Jesus anticipated the joy of bringing many sons to glory. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. And it says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We know something about Jesus' agony facing the cross, don't we, as we read the accounts in the Garden of Gethsemane? The absolute agony, because he knew exactly what he was facing. Not only the physical pain of, of, of the flogging and, uh, and the crucifixion, but the agony of being separated from his father. And yet what motivated him, it says, the joy that was set before him. Now was that just the joy of returning to the father and where, where he'd come from? I think it was perhaps more the fact that he was bringing many sons to glory. It was the joy of knowing that you and me were going to share eternity with him. That all this sacrifice was worth it so that sinful human beings like us could share eternity in a perfect heaven. And that's what, what this means for Jesus. And it helped Jesus face the cross and persevere to the end. We don't know what, exactly what heaven's going to be like, what eternity's going to be like with Jesus. But it must be fantastic if Jesus was prepared to go to those lengths in order to secure it for us. Well, look at the cost. If somebody was going to take you on holiday and they said, we're going on a world cruise and it actually costs £10,000 a head, but we're paying for you, um, you may not know what it's like, but you think for £10,000 it must be pretty fantastic. It must be the best thing ever. Well, Jesus laid down his life for something that he wants us to enjoy and it was the joy that was set before him. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Just as we definitely close now, just a quote from an old hymn. Tell me the old, old story. Um, the world has got hold of this and they've used it. Like if they think you're, you're telling you know, a, a falsehood or it's a bit of a yarn, they'll say, tell me the old, old story then. All right? But there's some real truth in it. And I've just picked out the last verse. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. The world is attractive, isn't it? And, you know, there's a temptation to say, I want the best of everything that's around. Yes, when this world's glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. So we need to look at Jesus and we need to rehearse the old, old story. This is the gospel. It's the gospel that will help keep us from the corruption of the world and for chasing after the world and for thinking this is all there is. We need to know the gospel in its fullness. Not only Jesus saves from sin, but he has gone to prepare a place for us and he's coming again to receive us to himself. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I trust in various ways that's what we'll keep doing here. So I've said be inspired by the lives of others, but keep your eyes on Jesus. There are some questions there um, that you might care to look at uh, in cell. Um, just to ask the question, share if you have an Old Testament hero of faith and why that is. 
And if you've got a modern hero of faith, maybe a missionary like I was quoting, Jim Elliott, just share that with your group and maybe recommend a book. I don't know whether you read missionary stories. I've not, you know, I can't say extensively, but I've got quite a few on my shelves. And some I go back to because they're so inspiring. They're so inspiring. So you might like to share that. And then, um, you know, in the next question is, in your desire to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and persevere in your faith, what is most likely to A, discourage you and B, distract you? Okay, we get discouraged as Christians, don't we? We get disappointed, maybe sometimes disillusioned about things. And then the last question, be prepared to share with your group any current struggles and pray for one another. Let's share these things. Let others come and encourage you and say, hey, I know you're going through that, but don't you remember last year you were going through something very difficult and you came through, you made it, okay? Because God was with you and God gave you grace. Let's pray. Father, it's good to look at men and women just like us, vulnerable, weak, Father, who achieve so much because they put their trust in you. And it is an encouragement. But we thank you that we have the very Son of God who came from heaven and lived our life, and even as was read for us this morning, that in all points he was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He's lived our life. He knows the struggles. And Lord, thank you that we can look to him as our wonderful example and to know that he's not just an example, but one who by the Holy Spirit will come alongside us and encourage us and strengthen us and give us more grace. Lord, we bless you for the truth of your word. Lord, may it penetrate our hearts and transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, If you'd like um, prayer, we'll be up front here. We're very happy to pray for you.